Before we begin, let's go ahead and bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, do we love you. We thank you so much, even for the times in our lives where we're struggling, the times in our lives where we may not fully understand what you're doing, where we question because of our frail minds. Lord, I just pray right now that you would speak through me, that you would anoint my lips, my mind, my heart. Everything that comes out of my mouth today would only come from you. And that all those who are here watching, here that are present, that our hearts and everything about us would be changed, that we would be drawn closer to you, that we would know your love and how great and extensive that love is that has no limits. The message that you continue to send into our hearts, I pray that all of us here would receive it today and that when we leave this building, that we would be changed, that we would not leave the same way that we came in and that our hearts would be connected to you and devoted to you in every way. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. And we, as always, we praise you. And I ask these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. Our scripture reading for today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, which says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You know, Paul's overarching message to the Corinthians here was centered around the Christian life. It was centered around how we are consumed with idolatry around us, with immorality, lewdness, the self-seeking of human knowledge. And what he was trying to do is he was writing out to them to try to draw them into unity with each other, to bring them in unity with the church and with Christ. But at the heart of the unity of the church is the message of the cross. That is the heart. The message consists of love and obedience, trust and faith, surrender, and answering the call. All of which we're going to look over today. And we're going to look at various examples in the Bible. But as we look at this scripture reading in 1 Corinthians 1.18, you'll notice immediately two things, that there's two groups here. There's the foolish and there's the saved. Now looking back in that time, the foolish, you know, the Pharisees, they, when they saw Jesus on the cross, when they saw this message that was being presented to them and to all of us, to all of humanity, they looked at it as foolishness. They looked at it as, this is our king, this is our Savior. One of the worst things that someone could experience or go through, one of the worst punishments was the crucifixion. And here the Pharisees looked at this man and saw that it was foolishness. It was absurd. It was silly to them. They looked at their so-called king as he died on the cross. But then there are those, that other group, the saved, those who believed in the power of Christ and what was being done in front of them, that God had come down as a man, humbled himself, and allowed himself to be sacrificed for each and every one of us, whether you believed or not. And many of us, to include the Pharisees and the people back then, they failed to realize that the word of God, everything that they had been reading in the scriptures from the prophets from before, was right there in front of them. It was being manifested right in front of them through Jesus Christ. That God's love was being shown through this man. They failed to recognize that Jesus, like I said, was he humbled himself. God humbled himself. He created you, created me, everything that you see around you, the air that we breathe, the love that we feel, the pain that we feel. God feels all of that for you. 
One of the problems is that they look to man. They look to traditions. They look to their own understanding, to the influence of others. Worst of all, they listen to the message that came from man and not the message that came from our Heavenly Father. Maybe they were just complacent in the life that they were living in that moment and they felt no need for a God. You know, I, know I can only speak from my own experience. When I first came to Christ and I first recognized this message on the cross, I was at an evangelistic series that was being held by Kenny Shelton. And it was an incredible moment for me because prior to that, I really wanted nothing to do with God. But he used this man, Kenny Shelton, in a way to reach me, just like all of us here. Somebody was used to reach you in some way, shape, or form. One of the biggest difficulties then for me is, as I felt God's calling in my life and into that relationship, it was a very difficult decision because I had struggled so much with being in the world, knowing what I know, doing what I do, and being content with living in that world. But something had to change, and I knew it. I knew it in my heart that something had to be different. And as I felt this, this calling on my life, I could hear, literally hear, the lies of the devil, telling me all the things that I don't want to hear, telling me that, how can God love someone like me? Look at what you've done and the things that you've done in your past, the people that you've hurt, the things that you've said, the life that you lived. But God sent a more powerful message, a message of love. And I think sometimes through our experiences, through people, through trials, he uses these things for us to, to focus on him. And that's kind of what happened to me also in preparation for this sermon was, out of all the trials that I was going through, it was God trying to tell me to pull me back in and just say, hey, just focus on me. Stop looking at yourself and what you're trying to do. So what we're going to do through this message is we're going to go through four messages that God has sent to individuals throughout the Bible. And this is kind of a, a pattern. You'll see a flow because this is how it worked in my life. And this is how I kind of see this repetition being played out throughout the scriptures. The first message that was given was one of love and obedience. And that was shared with Adam and Eve. And if you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, it says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, why would I bring up this verse about love and obedience? You know, there was an intimacy in this creation because prior to the creation of man, it was God saying, let there be light, let there be firmament, let there be dry land, let that land bring forth grass. What he spoke is what was made and what happened. But with man, it was completely different. We were formed with his hands and he was so close to us, so close that he could breathe into our nostrils. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, I have, I have a personal space. So if someone's breathing into my nostrils, I'm going to know it. So that's the closeness that God had with us as we were being created. That closeness where he could breathe his breath into our body and become a living soul. Humanity was formed with his hands. We see this in Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 8, which says... But now, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you our potter, and all we are the work of your hand. I'm going to share a silly, kind of a silly story with you. But when I was in elementary school, I was raised Catholic, and I went to a Catholic private school. I probably shouldn't, I'm not going to say their name, actually, but... Um, what we did was we had a pottery class, and it was Mother's Day that was coming up, and we had to create something for our mothers. Well, I was a little boy creating this, not really knowing what it was coming out to, and this little piece of pottery, 
And I ended up creating an ashtray. Don't ask me why. My mother didn't smoke. My father didn't smoke. But I created an ashtray. And I was so happy with this little deformed piece of pottery. I, I wish I brought it with me so you could see it. It was horrible. But to me, it was beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And it was something I was going to share with my mother. And I remember coming home and, and having it in my hands and being so excited to give my mother an ashtray. And you know, when God formed us, he's just so excited. Even though with our imperfections that we have now, he is just so excited to have a relationship with you. I created an inanimate object and had so much love for it. God creating a living, breathing, thinking, loving human being. And he has so much love for it. We see in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, this is so man could understand this type of love because we were alone at this time. We didn't understand that type of love that God had for us. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, it says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone, and I will make him a helper comparable to him. You know, God, when he created woman too, it wasn't just spoken like previous days in creation. It was formed from Adam, from the side, so that we are equal. You find this in Genesis, uh, two chapter, or Genesis chapter 2, verse 22. But he did this, like I said, so we can understand love. We can understand that unity with each other. And he did that by creating woman so that we could have that unity, so we could understand that love. And marriage, for anybody here who is married, we all know, is a wonderful and grateful teacher. We learn so much about being married. Don't worry, babe, I'm not going to share any stories. But he wanted us to learn that love and obedience, that same love and obedience that he shared with Adam and Eve, he wanted us to experience. You know, in my 15 years of marriage, we actually just celebrated our 15-year anniversary. I'm still learning, thank you. I'm still learning about my wife and the things that she wants and the things that she likes. But as with any marriage, there are boundaries. And these boundaries are set forth in our vows. Some we say openly. Others we just inherently know. But just as there's boundaries within a marriage, there are boundaries within our relationship with God. And there's an expected obedience with these boundaries. And God set them up so that we could express our love. These boundaries are not there to prevent us from Going down, well, it is there to prevent us from going down wrong paths, but it is there so that we can experience love on a true level. And one of God's commands that He gave to Adam and Eve, which was a great test, we all know this, it comes in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16 and 17. It says, And the Lord God commanded that man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now God gave this commandment so we could express our love and our obedience to him. When he gave us this commandment, we are instructed by two things. We could either, or we have two choices. We can either obey him and love, or we can disobey and turn away from God. Rather than listening to the influences of our creator, Adam and Eve, they listened to the influences of the, of the deceiver. And this led to their eviction from Eden and their direct communication from God. And every time that we turn away from that love and obedience, it is us saying the same thing. We're turning away from our connection with God and we're just telling him that we don't want him. God has sent each and every one of us, a message of love and obedience. Just like he gave Adam and Eve. He's invited us into a loving relationship with him. The second message that we're going to look at 
was the message that was given to the children of Israel through Moses. And it is about trust and faith. We know, or we can see this trust and faith, and this is a verse that I turn to often, which is found in Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 11. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now, how many here have read that verse before? How many are familiar with that? Many of us are. If you're not, no worries. Get used to this verse. Tuck this one away in your pocket and in your memory bank. This is one you want to hold on to. But there are times in our lives where we may question God's plans. And I often wonder many times in my own life, what are his plans? You know, I work at 3BN and here I am preaching God's word to you. God's delivered me so much in my life. But then there are times, if we're honest with ourselves, that we can still feel like we're in bondage. Not to sin, but for me it's to my own thoughts, the things that I struggle with in my own mind. And if I'm going to be, continue to be honest and transparent with you, There are many times that I carry doubt and fear with me. It's not something I'm I'm proud of. Many times I I can hide it on my exterior, but on the inside, I still feel that doubt. I still have that fear. Not in God, but in myself. I'm always questioning myself. But I desire in the worst possible way to serve God. Someone said to me recently, are you willing to be everything and are you willing to be nothing for God? And that's exactly how I feel for him. Every day of my life, I'm willing to be everything and I'm willing to be nothing for him. But I often wonder, do I really have trust and faith in God? Was the things that he was maybe showing me this week is how little I really have? Because I kept leaning on myself, feeling like it has to be me. The things that I know, the brain that I have, it's got to be me in preparation for this message. We see in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 7 and 8, it says, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them from the land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. You know, the children of Israel, they had fallen into bondage for 430 years. And at the end of this time, God had commanded him to bring them out. Now Moses was very apprehensive. He kept looking at himself, saying, who am I to bring them out of Egypt? The children of Israel, they were held captive for 430 years, and I imagine that their relationship with God had been strained. In fact, it was probably on a very superficial level for many. And for God to to bring them out of Egypt, he showed some miracles, if you want to call them that. But he showed plagues. There was the water that became blood, frogs, lice, Flies, the death of livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and the death of a firstborn. And as he used these plagues to bring the children of Egypt out of, or the children of Israel out of Egypt, God was still there with them too. He led them by a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. And on their final approach to the Red Sea, all they could see now was the obstacles in front of them. And as they turned around, they now see the Egyptian army coming after them. They forgot everything that God had just shown them in these plagues and the miracles that God performs and the power that he has. They completely forgot about what he was capable of. And all they did was look to the obstacles in the front and the obstacles in the rear. And in Exodus chapter 14, verse 11, then they said to Moses, 
Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? This question here is almost like a sarcastic question. Consider where they were just coming from, Egypt. This is a place that honors death in such a way where their tombs, the coffins that they were laid in, the gold, the diamonds, everything. They had more burial grounds and areas and more elaborate tombs. And here the children of Israel are saying, were there no graves in Egypt? They questioned here, and they questioned God. God's chosen people had just witnessed plague after plague and what God was capable of. Yet all they could see was the obstacles around them. All they could say was, God, why have you brought me here? How many times have we asked that question to ourselves? God, why have you brought me here? What am I doing? Moses' response is found in in verse 13. Moses says to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. And the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. What I like to do in, in this verse, this is something that I've mentioned pri- or previously, not in today's message, but in a previous one that I did several months ago. But the Egyptians, just insert something that you are holding on to that you know you shouldn't, whether that's fear, doubt, anger, a lack of faith and trust. And then that reads, for the fear whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. For the lack of faith you have today, you shall see again no more forever. You know, and Moses is also telling them to stand still. I think so many times we feel like God needs our help. And we try to step in for him. I know prior to me coming to Thompsonville and being a part of 3ABN in this church, I had just transitioned out of the army. I wasn't receiving a paycheck I was waiting on God to show me what he wanted me to do. My wife can attest to you that the only things, though, that were coming out of my mouth was, God, I want to work for you. I don't know what you have for me, but I want to work for you. Now, I could have gone back and doing a contracting, a government contracting job, doing the same exact thing that I was doing in the Army, but it's not what I wanted to do. It's not what was in my heart anymore. And as the time went on, where my trust and faith with God was being strained, where week after week, there's no money coming in. Week after week, I'm just watching my bank account dwindle more and more and more. And the funny thing is that every single time that I tried to step in, I said, okay, God, I'm just, I got to go get a job. I got to go get something. I would get a phone call. One came from, I remember, Pastor John Lomacane. He called me up and said, hey, send me your resume. There was another time, several months later, I'm still watching my bank account dwindle and dwindle. And I said, God, I'm going to go find something. I need to get a job. I remember being in the, in the car with my wife, and I just said, Lord, I said, babe, I got to get a job. We got to do something. We can't survive on this. And within minutes, I got a phone call from Jill Morricone, saying we would like to invite you up here for an interview. You know, God will continue to stretch us little by little just to let you know that he's still there and that you can have faith and trust in him. God provided a path for me to come here, and God provided a path for the children of Israel. And not only did he provide that path, but when he separated that Red Sea, something that many of us don't think about, But as that sea was parted, it was dry ground that they were walking on. There was nothing to slow them down. Once God opens up that path for you and you learn to have that trust and faith in him, it's going to be a dry path for you, nothing to slow you down. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 24, it says, And the people complained against Moses. This is after they had crossed the Red Sea. And they have already seen miracle after miracle. And, they sa- and saying, What shall we drink? Can you imagine already doubting God? 
after everything he just showed you in Egypt, everything he just showed you on your way out of Egypt, and here they are questioning, what are we going to drink? Moses was then, was then commanded to take a tree and place it in the water and made those bitter waters sweet by a tree. In Exodus 16, in verse 2 and 3, we once again see it, where it says, Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The children of, of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by with pots of meat, and we ate bread to the full. And you brought us out here into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Can you imagine? After everything God has done, here they are still yet again questioning. All they're getting wrapped up in is, this is all I know. I think all they knew was Egypt. All they could hold on to was where they came from. And they would not let go of it. But the solution was, God rained down bread from heaven, and they were filled. In Exodus 17, and verse 3, it says, And the people thirsted there for water, yet again. <laughs> and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Once again, they have already seen what happens when they ask God for water? God provides them water. When they ask God for food, God provides them food. Once again, we see here that they're calling out for water. And Moses is commanded to take his rod, strike it on the rock, and water will come forth. Now, I don't know if you saw this or not. But in Exodus chapter 15... Chapter 16 and chapter 17. There's an illustrated conversion story here. Because in 15, these, the bitter waters were made sweet by a tree. Our sins, the choices that we make in our lives, the times that we turn away from God, where we make our, our own bodies, our own mind, where we make it bitter, because of the things that we have done, have been made sweet by the precious sacrifice that was made on a tree. In verse 16, once we have accepted what God has done for us and the sacrifice that he has made for us, he rains down bread from heaven. He fills us with the knowledge of him and everything that he has done for us. And we fall in love with him. In Exodus chapter 17, we're given water from a rock. And we know that Jesus is our rock who gives us all the water that we need and baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. He baptizes us with his love. He baptizes us with his compassion, with his understanding, with the desire to work for him and to bring people closer to him. Because now we've experienced who our God really is. And throughout this entire exodus from Egypt, it's such a shame when you think about it, but you read in Numbers 13, chapter 13 and 14, that of all the people that came out of Egypt, there were only two that made it into the promised land. Only two. Joshua and Caleb, only two fully believed and trusted in God. You know, when you think about that, I look at my own life, and out of all the things that God has already shown me in my short time as a Christian, I was only baptized in December of 2019. And in that short time, God has already shown me so many miracles, not just in my own life, in other people's lives, in my family's life. And I wonder, am I going to end up like them? 
Am I going to turn away and stop believing? Now, I know it's only a question that I have in my mind, and it's a dangerous one for me to ask myself, to be, to be honest. But I know that I trust in the Lord with all of my heart. We see it in Proverbs 3 and verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. I don't have it here, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. If I can just, if all of us, to include myself, can, can just keep our minds and our eyes focused on what Christ has done for us, for the sacrifice he made on the tree, for the bread that he reigns for us from heaven, the way that he takes care of us day in and day out, all you have to do is accept it. And it can be difficult at first as it was for me. I know that maybe there's somebody here or somebody watching who's never experienced this before, not to its fullest. I know for me, I was afraid. I really was afraid to turn to God. But we read in Psalm chapter 56 and verse 3, whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. You know, every time that I have to speak on God's behalf, I'm afraid. But I trust in him because all I'm doing is being a vessel for him. Whenever God calls you to work for him, don't even fear. God has called you for a reason and called you each for a purpose. All you have to do is just surrender it to him. Allow him to work in you. He will take care of the rest. Don't get comfortable where you're at. Make yourself uncomfortable. Because each time God is sending us a message of trust and faith, it's going to stretch you. But it's going to show you his marvelous works in ways that you can't even imagine. The next message that was given was a message of surrender. And this was to a man named Naaman. For those of you who know the story, we can find Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It says, Now Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master. Because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria, he was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. So here it kind of gives you an, a, a, a look into who Naaman is in just one short verse. We find that he's a commander of a Syrian army, so he is very high in ranking. The Bible says that he's great and an honorable man. He's a mighty man of valor. I can imagine this is a man held to a very high regard by his soldiers and very well respected. While he was in Syria, it was made known to Naaman that there was a prophet in Israel to heal him of his one problem, to heal him of his leprosy. And the king of Syria basically told Naaman, go ahead and I will send a letter to the king of Israel and let him know of your coming. Now mind you, Syria and Israel had been going to war with each other. There had been border wars with each other. They had been constantly fighting, but yet this man Naaman was so desperate to heal himself that he was willing to go visit his enemy to be healed. We pick up in verse 9 where he shows up at the prophet's door. 2 Kings chapter 5 and verse 9. We're going to read on to verse 11. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over this place and heal the leprosy. It was almost as if Naaman wanted some grand spectacle. He wanted this grand showing that he's so used to having as this honorable commander, this grand performance or an, an exhibition, if you will, of his healing by the prophet. But Elisha didn't even come to the door. He sent a prophet. 
I wonder why that was. We'll get to that. In 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 12, Naaman responds back, Are not the Abana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away and went away in a rage. You see, the Jordan River wasn't enough for him. It was too dirty, too polluted. It wasn't to his standards. He wanted this grand spectacle. And he questioned it. You want me to do what? You want me to go into what river? And the prophet won't even see me? And you want me to dip seven times in this river? This was a man who wanted to be in control. This was a man who liked things done his way, who wanted things done to his expectations. I know I'm sharing a lot of my own personal testimonies today, but you're going to hear it. (laughs) There was a, a time in my life, control. Now, I came from the army. So I can relate a little bit to Naaman here. I served almost 12 years in the United States Army. And when I, once you reach a certain rank, you're in control. Everything falls on you, relies on you. You have to give orders and things have to be done the way that you want them done. Even if the soldiers don't like it. Even if they have to take a toothbrush and start cleaning floors with a toothbrush. It doesn't matter, you just have to do it. I didn't do that to anybody, if anyone's wondering. I wasn't that kind of sergeant. But control was something that you had to have while in the army. You even had to exude, you had to make it look like you had control, to make it look like you had authority, even if you didn't. Even if you questioned it, you still had to make it look like that. So I can relate a little bit to what Naaman here is having that control because one of the jobs that I had is I was an analyst in the Army. So things had to be a certain way, had to be done a certain way. So anytime things didn't go right and I started to lose that control, I felt threatened, had to get it back, had to figure out a way. And here we have Naaman, who has that same problem. And I know when I tried to turn my life over to God, one of the hardest things was to relinquish that control, to relinquish my life over to him, to no longer do things my way, but to do things his way. It was the most difficult thing. But after some convincing to Naaman by his servants... He then obeyed what Elisha told him to do through the servant. And we see this in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him. And he said, Indeed, Now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now therefore, please take a gift from your servant. I can imagine that throughout this process, though, that Naaman was just kind of going through the motions. That as he's in this Jordan River, he's just like, all right, one, two, three. Three, But what he didn't know was that each time that he dipped himself under that water, he was surrendering himself little by little. Even though he was, felt like he was going through the motions, he was still surrendering himself unbeknownst to him. He was letting go with each dip, first dip, letting go of pride, 
The second dip, letting go of anger. The third dip, letting go of resentment. The fourth, self-exaltation. And the fifth and the sixth and ultimately the seventh. During this time, how previously in his life he continued to push God away from him and he was accepting God into his life. And just as Naaman had each layer of his leprous skin shed off with each surrender, what is it in our lives that needs to be shed off with each surrender to God? Is it pride? Is it anger? Is it resentment? Is it how you interact with others? Having love for others? Having love for your enemy? The most amazing thing about this story of Naaman, though, it's not even Naaman. I skipped these verses on purpose, but they're found in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 2 and 3. This is the most amazing part of the story. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. Here is where we find true surrender. A young girl, not even given a name, was fully surrendered to God that even being held by her captors, what would seemingly be the world crushing in on her, loss of her mother, loss of a father, brother, sister, she was so connected and so surrendered to God that she was willing to help even her enemies who held her captive. Now that is surrender. That is doing the will of God. Not so much Naaman, even though what he did was amen and praise God. And I imagine as he went back to his Syrian army, was a testimony within itself to his soldiers and another witnessing of God and his strength and his power and his love for us. But when I think about just this young servant girl being so willing and so loving to help her captors that she just exuded the character of God. The last message that was given is to answer the call. And there was one that was given to Jonah. And Jonah chapter 1 and verse 2 reads, Arise. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. When God calls you to arise, you can either arise in the righteousness that is found in Christ. When he calls you to arise, you can arise to the plans that he has set before you, and you can walk in them. You can arise to the calling that God has placed on your life. But when God calls on you, who are you going to arise to? Or in other words, who are you going to present yourself to? Because that's what this arise means. Who are you going to present yourself to? There are those who are willing to run from God's calling, and they're willing to pay a price just to keep them from what God has called them to do. There are people who have continued to refuse and follow God's leading. We see Jonah, what he did, in verse 3, where it says, But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Not only did Jonah run and, and hide, he ran and went into Joppa. He went and found a ship. He even paid to run from God. He presented himself in this denial of what God was calling him to do. He presented himself to be a workman for Satan by denying God's work. 
So when we do that, will you present yourself to God's calling? Or will you present and deny him? In Romans 6.16, we read, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? You are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. In order to be a slave, you have to first be purchased. And you've either been purchased by the blood of Jesus or you've been purchased with a lie. Now, I want to make something clear. You have already been purchased by the blood of Jesus, no matter what you choose to do. But are you going to allow yourself, or I should say, there's a uniqueness in this servitude, in this slavery, because you actually have a choice who your master can be. And with these two purchase prices, They show what you are worth. On one hand, the purchase price was the life of Jesus. That's what the purchase price was for you. The other price was with a lie. Which one is worth more? In Jonah chapter 1 and verse 4 and 5, we read, But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God, and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had laid down, and was fast asleep. Rather than arising to the calling of God, Jonah chose to run and flee. But not only that, Jonah chose to hide himself in the lowest parts of that ship. And sometimes when we continue to deny God over and over again, we start to hide ourselves in the lowest parts of a ship. We start to bring in a great wind on our lives. We start to bring in more trials than we really need to have. I know for me, and this is sometimes difficult to talk about, um, I had to hit the lowest part in my own life in order to really surrender to God. I had to lose almost everything that I loved. Some of you have already heard this before, but there was a time in my life when I was still in the army, and... I was so consumed with the world, and I was so consumed with doubt and fear. I was so consumed with not liking who I was. And I became, I indulged in alcohol. I tried to use this as my way out, and some of the things that I was also seeing and doing in the army, I didn't know how to handle them, because the army didn't train you for that. My marriage was crumbling, falling apart. And at the same time, my mother was sick and dying with cancer. I had all these things crashing in on me when I didn't have a relationship with God. So you can imagine where where my thoughts would go, where my mind would go. And I had to reach the lowest part of that ship. And I actually wanted to take my own life. And I spent four days in a military medical facility on suicide watch. And when I was released, uh, four days after that is when my mother passed away. I was reaching the lowest part in my life. Everything was being taken from me. My mother, my family, my beautiful wife, 
I'm just going to say praise God for my wife. Praise God for wives. <laughs> but I had to reach my lowest absolute part in my life in order to find God. Because he changed my whole perspective on the world. Everything. I, I don't know how he did it. It's inexplic- inexplainable. You see, we learned from Adam and Eve that God sends us a message of love and obedience. From the children of Israel, it's a message of trust and faith. We can find from Naaman and the servant girl a message of surrender. And from Jonah we find a message of a calling. Allow me to just share one more story with you. During the Revolutionary War, it was the evening of Christmas, December 25th, 1776. George Washington and his army began an arduous crossing of the Delaware River. It was a very cold and wintry night. And as he was on his way to Trenton, New Jersey, there was a colonel there named Johann Rall. Now, Johann Rall was encamped with his Hessian mercenaries. Hessian is just they were German mercenaries in Trenton. The story goes on that someone went to go notify Colonel Rall of the incoming army from George Washington. But he was too preoccupied. There's different stories to this, but he was busy in entertainment. He was playing poker or playing chess, and he didn't want to be disturbed with the message. So they hand-wrote it, and somebody handed it to Colonel Rawl. And he took it as he was engaged in his entertainment that evening and put it in his pocket. Colonel Rawl was then invaded by General George Washington. And it was a pretty swift and decisive victory that he had over them. Colonel Rawl lost his life. He was shot twice. And later they found him with that unopened warning letter in his pocket. The reason why I chose this message today, a message unopened, is that each day, We are given an unopened letter or a message. It is signed by God for us to open. Yet we're only given one each day. The days ahead are sealed and those are not to be tampered with. He wants us to be faithful in this day, trusting in his plans for tomorrow, embracing the gifts that he reveals each moment. His word is a love letter, and his love letter is greater than any other. He's patiently waiting for you to accept his message. His carefully chosen words, they bring life to weary, waiting soul, and hope that literally changes you into a new creation by simply answering his message. Are you too busy in this world to open up God's message? Are you too distracted by the things around you? Are you too comfortable in your life right now not to recognize the sacrifice of a life that was given for you, the message that was on the cross? Do you not even realize that you have a message in your pocket Right now. God has given you a message right now. You can receive his letter, open it, and fall in love with Jesus, your one true love. He's faithful to the end, the one who gave his life, just so you could read 
his message. That song represents what Christ has done for you. It is a simple message for you to open. It's not hard. It's not difficult. You just got to open it and let God be God and do what he does and work in your life. He's called you into relationship with him. It's your choice. That message is in your pocket. 
You just have to open it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that every one of us opens up your message every day. That there's somebody here, maybe somebody watching, who may not even realize how much you've been calling out to them, that they would just turn their lives over to you. That they would just open the love letter that you have given them. The message that you have in your word, which is for them. That they can experience your love. Father, you have done so much for us. Experienced so much pain, so much suffering on our behalf so that we can spend eternity with you. Lord, I pray we invite that message into our heart and that the message that is on the cross does not become foolishness to us. That we realize the preciousness of that message on the cross and that we accept it fully into our lives and that we would turn it over to you. Lord, be with us as we leave here today and as we continue on with this Sabbath. Help us to keep our minds focused on you throughout this day and each and every day going forth. Father, we love you. And we invite you into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.